Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Issue by Issue, a DC Comics completionist podcast. I'm your host, Nick Byers, and we're back again. I hope everyone enjoyed the triumphant return of Issue by Issue, classic, original, and enjoyed the the new offering, so to speak, of uh, Issue by Issue, colon, crisis. I gotta stop saying the colon, because... In the episode, I say colon crisis, and if you say it fast, it sounds like colon crisis, and that's not what I'm trying to, per, you know, put out into the world. Uh, so I got to stop saying the colon. But we're back. Uh, it's episode ten of the original of the OG issue by issue, uh, and this week we will be uh, studying or going over Action Comics number twenty-four, More Fun Comics number fifty-five. And Detective Comics number 39. Uh, some new stuff in there, uh, in, in more fun comics number 55, but otherwise just a lot of the classic mainstays of the show. Superman, Zatara, Batman, Crimson Avenger, stuff like that. But before we can do that, we need to go through the real world history. And this week we'll be covering March 21st through April 4th. So, March 21st, Woody Guthrie, the folk singer, was recorded for the first time. Uh, in an interview with Alan Lomax for the Library of Congress, during which he also performed some original and traditional songs. We're then jumping all the way to April 1st. Uh, on April 1st, the BBC broadcast uh, broadcasted what appeared to be a speech by Adolf Hitler, in which the leader reminded the audience that Columbus had dis- Discovered America with the help of German science and technology, and therefore Germany, Germany had a right to have some part in the achievement which this voyage of discovery was to result in. This meant that all Americans of Czech and Polish descent were entitled to come under the protection of Germany, and that Hitler would enforce that right, not only theoretically, but practically. Once the German protectorate was extended to the United States, the Statue of Liberty would be removed to alleviate traffic congestion, and the White House would be renamed the Brown House. CBS contacted the BBC in something of panic, trying to learn more about the origin of the broadcast, not realizing that it was an April Fool's Day hoax. Which is... Funny. Countries don't do that anymore. Like, companies don't do elaborate hoax like this. They're just like, uh, they, they come up with boring stuff these days. Not threatening <laughs> threatening a country's citizens to become under the protection of a hostile foreign power. You know? Hilarious practical joke. But something real that Hitler did do on April 2nd, he signed the order of, the order for Operation Wesserum. Bung, sorry, I don't speak German. Uh, the German invasion of Denmark and Norway. Pretty big event. April 3rd, the British cabinet approved Operation Wilfred, which was Winston Churchill's plans to mine the sea routes between Norway, Sweden, and Germany, and for Anglo-French landings in Norway to forestall a German invasion there, which British intelligence believed was imminent. However, the British government still dithered about implementing the plan due to Norway's neutrality. Now, he says to mine the sea routes, not like mine them for resources, but like install sea mines to stop uh, naval traffic uh, and stuff like that. 
April 4th, Neville, Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Britain, gave a speech to the Conservative Party in London stating he was confident of victory and that Hitler had missed the bus by not taking advantage of Germany's military superiority over Britain at the beginning of the war. Very true. Chamberlain was a big proponent of appeasement because of Germany's military might uh, at the beginning of the conflict, uh, or before the conflict even began. Uh, but that is the real world history. That's the big goings on of the time these issues were coming out. Now let's get into the actual issues. Uh, we'll just be starting off with Action Comics number 24, released March 21st, 1940, with a cover date of May 1940. Uh, it has a Superman and a Zatara story as usual, uh, but we'll be starting, of course, with the Superman story, written by Jerry Siegel, drawn by Joe Schuster, and inked by Paul Cassidy. Uh, this story, the Superman story, is bad. It is bad. I don't like it, mostly because... Uh, it's not something that Superman is necessary for. He, it's, it's so low stakes and it's, it, I don't even know how to express it. It, it, it deals with Superman, like basically just helping out rich people. And I don't like that. And that's not like, that's not super, not Superman's bag. You know, he's for the little guy. Um. Uh, helping out rich people is lame, and that's also the purview of Batman. So, but let's get started. Um, it all starts with an ad in every Metropolis newspaper, including the Daily Planet. And it says, Superman! Exclamation point. I urgently need your assistance! Exclamation point. Address, box Y-84. Now, I don't know how addresses back then worked, but what is a post office box going to do? Uh, I just don't understand how the address... Is that a house? Is it a post office box? Like, I think it is. I don't know how it's going to help. But it doesn't matter because uh, we don't even need to know if it's an address box or anything because, for whatever reason, George Taylor, the editor of the Daily Planet, knows who took out the ad because he's, I guess, dealing with the ad department? That's in a completely different department. Whatever. He says that it was put in the paper by uh, one of the wealthiest men in town, Rufus Carnahan. Uh, he's, he, they let us know he's a retired industrialist. Thanks. Very helpful. Uh, he sends Clark to go get the story of why this man needs Superman's help. And Clark, of course, is like, yeah, of course, I will cover literally anything that it could possibly be a story. I'm always, always looking for work. So Clark goes down there, and he, he rings the doorbell, and the butler answers, and uh, he says, Hi, I'm a reporter from the Daily Planet, and the butler throws him out, says, Guy here, reporters, scram! And uh, Clark calls him a cordial cuss. What a, what a, what a turn of phrase that is. Uh, he then dons his Superman costume, which, throughout this issue, it's the shield on it is missing the yellow which I think is weird. It could have just been a mistake, but it, it makes the costume look weird for whatever reason. He returns and knocks on the door, and rather than just introducing himself, being like, hey, I'm Superman, uh, he instead makes a big rigmarole that I'll explain to you now. He answer he rings the doorbell. The butler answers. The butler says, makes a joke about there not being a masquerade ball here. 
Superman then ignores him and says, since you insist, I'll come in. He didn't say that. And the butler says that. He says, I didn't invite you. And Superman says, I don't care, and pushes him out of the way. And then the butler's like, well, I'm going to call the police. And Superman says, they can probably hear you. You're yelling so loud. Superman, why are you doing this? Why are you acting this way? The Mr. Carnahan comes out of his bedroom. He's an invalid. Like, he's sick. So he's bedridden. And he says, what's what's going on? What's the disturbance? And the butler says, this this weirdo's here. Uh, but get back in bed, Mr. Canahan. Carnahan. Superman then jumps up into the second story and grabs Mr. Carnahan and says, the butler's right to bed with you. And he takes him and puts him in bed. And the butler calls the police and asks them to send police over. And now Superman finally introduces himself to Mr. Carnahan and says, hey, I'm Superman. Great. Good Good to know. Good Good that everyone knows now who everybody is. I, I just don't get why, how this guy doesn't know what Superman looks like. He asked for him specifically in the newspaper, and he has to have Superman introduce himself. I just don't. He Superman's well known enough to be name-checked in an ad, but not well known enough to know what he looks like. I just, I don't know. Uh, so basically, Mr. Carnahan then tells Superman why he needs his help. Basically, he says, uh, I'm a bad father, and my son is a weak-kneed sop and a spendthrift, and he uh, is a gambler, and he loses a lot. So Mr. Carnahan, because he's rich, thinks that he everyone should just do what he wants, and he says, Superman... I'll pay you to, I guess, make my son a better person or whatever. And Superman, of course, says, yeah, of course, I've got nothing better to do. I'm sure there's no robberies or muggings or murders or, you know, anything. He was fighting, like, robots in, like, the the first image of Superman. So I'm sure there's no robots or anything going on. Uh, this is the best use of my time, Superman, a man who can punch through a train or something but he says yep yeah, i'll do it uh the son in question peter carnahan shows up at that moment downstairs talks to the butler and says and the butler tells him that there's a madman upstairs with your father and he's menacing him and peter carnahan who is a weak-kneed sop whichever that whatever that means but it means he's a coward basically and he goes and sits under the stairs and, I guess, cries uh, a little bit. He's like, I'm so scared, I can't go up there and save my dad. Then the police show up, and they run upstairs. Superman's sitting on the bed talking to Mr. Carney, and, and he jumps out the window to get away. Peter then answers a phone call and uh, rushes out of the house to his car. He's looking distraught. Superman follows him to a place called the Purple Ore, one of the most notorious roadhouses in town. So Peter's up to no good for some reason. He, We find out that he's in there to meet a Jake Brent, uh, who he owes $10,000 in gambling debt, and he's asking for more time. He needs more time. And Brent says, get me the, get me the dough, or I'm going to go straight to your old man. And Peter says, no, my dad said he'll disinherit me if I'm caught gambling again. So, Superman's listening to all this, of course, because he's an eavesdropper. 
So he then runs, I guess, instead of talking to Peter and trying to put him, set him on the straight and narrow and get this figured out, he leaves. Uh, he, he, he puts back on his Clark Kent stuff and goes back to the paper uh, where he finds out that Rufus Carnahan, the, the father, has died. His sickness has taken him. And then uh, Clark is tasked with writing the obituary because I guess they don't have an obituary writer. It's like, it's the Daily Planet, but Clark has to write everything. Which is weird. Like, where's Lois? Where's Jimmy Olsen? Where's all the other people that we've seen working at the Daily Planet? Why are they not, why are not, they not writing this? But in his writing of the obituary, he founds, he finds out, like, one of the things in Rufus Carnahan's will, which I don't know, like, are wills public, like, access? Can anyone see anyone's will? I, I just feel like, why would Clark know that? And why would, or like, where would that information come from? We find out that in Mr. Carnahan's will, there is a clause that says, if the son, Peter, is involved in a gambling scandal, Peter is not to receive one cent. Okay really weirdly specific, but the, the guy clearly has a gambling addiction, and rather than, I guess, get him help, let's vilify him. That's fun. So, uh, the next day, Clark goes to talk with Peter Carnahan, uh, interview him as a newspaper reporter. Uh, Peter's very sad, of course, his dad is dead, as we all would be. When barging in comes Jake Brent, and Jake pushes Clark out of the room. Clark, being the meek, mild-mannered reporter, says, Hey, but wait a minute. I was in the middle of an interview. And he says, I don't care. Get out. So he gets out. Uh, Clark goes and hides behind a tree like a peeping Tom and uses his x-ray vision, also like a peeping Tom, and looks inside the Carnahan mansion and I guess also overhears, which he can. It doesn't say he uses his magical hearing, but he does. Uh, and he hears Jake Brent extorting not $10,000, but $100,000 from Peter. Or else he's going to go to the ex-executors of the will and tell them about this because of the clause in the will that I guess is just public information. Like, everyone, everyone knows it already. Why? I don't think that's how wills work. Maybe they do. I don't know. I don't have a will. Anyone could kill me, and all my stuff would just... Go to my parents. Don't, though. So, uh, the butler is walking outside the mansion and sees Clark Kent and says, Hey, what are you doing? Hiding behind a tree like a pervert. And Clark says, Well, uh, well, because... But don't worry, he doesn't have to finish that sentence because there's a bang! And Clark uh, looks through the wall again and sees uh, a smoking gun uh, and Peter's holding it. And Jake Brent is on the ground, and they rush inside, and Clark checks, and Brent is dead. Sad. Well, not really that sad, but... So, Peter flees. Peter has fled in his car, in his roadster, and Clark gets in his own roadster and drives off, but the car's too slow, so he turns into Superman and chases after the car. Jake, not Jake, Jake's dead. Peter is driving his car wicked fast and straight towards a cliff. Not not a great combo. He says, I'm going to drive off this cliff and just end it all. Superman, of course, stops him, grabs the car, lifts it up, 
puts his bare hand right through the tire. Says, "You, I hope you didn't want to drive home, because you can't. Superman then tells Peter, you can't run away from murder. And Peter says, well, I am innocent. And then, you know, you have to go to court and prove it. You know, you can't be on the run. That's not how it works. So he surrenders himself to the court. And, uh, well, first, uh, Superman assures him that he will not he will not go down for this if he actually is innocent. Superman will make sure of that. Even though it seems pretty open and shut. Like, oh, yeah, dude, dude killed him. He was the only two people in the room. The trial begins. Everyone's, it's the hottest trial of the summer. And we go through all of the, the court proceedings, very legal drama-like. And it all seems pretty bad for Peter. He fled the scene of the crime. He There's a stipulation in the will that everyone knows about. He owed Brent a lot of money. It's it's all It seems pretty cut and dry. And so he's found guilty. Sad for him. Sorry, sad for little rich boy. So Clark tries to go to the governor and say, I've got a hunch that he's innocent. And well, the governor says, well, stupid. I don't care if you have a hunch. I need facts. I need proof. I need evidence. And Clark's like, okay. Well, I don't have much time. Peter dies in the electric chair tonight. It's like, wow, okay. So it's it's time for Superman to... Uh, get to work and he goes to the Carnahan mansion and investigates why he didn't do this during the trial when it would have mattered I don't know he uses his microscopic vision to find a bullet in the floor and he realizes that Peter must have shot the gun into the floor on accident because the gun apparently went off in his hand he didn't shoot it it just went off and killed Jake Brent Superman also surmises that the bullet must have come in from the window. And I posit, why didn't the coroner figure that out? Like, I, I don't know. I know that, uh, like, forensic science is a very young profession. And I don't know when it came into vogue. But it seems like it should be pretty obvious, like, where, like, where a bullet went in and like if it's from that far away is it gonna go all the way through and would the gun that peter used have gone all the way through i don't know because i feel like if there's no bullet hole on the front but there is on the back it's like oh well it must have come from the back but then yeah it's it's uh i'm 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 thinking too much about it is the problem but uh, so i'm going to move on i'm going to move on clark then calls the Daily Planet Morgue. I don't know what that means. Um, but he asks him, who is Brent's bitterest enemy? And just right off the top of his head, this guy says, Benny Farrell, a rival gambler. Okay. Superman then goes to Farrell's gambling establishment. Uh, why don't they just say casino? Like, there's a word for gambling establishment. It's casino. Why don't they just say casino? It'd be fewer words for the letterer, and that's very nice. But uh, Superman overhears Farrell talking to, or Pharrell, I'm not sure, to two dudes. And they, of course, are talking about the murder, because that's what you do. You just talk about the murders that you've all done. 
They're like, ah, oh, Benny, in a few minutes, Carnahan's be electrocuted. Pretty convenient for you, eh? Considering that you really killed Jack Jake Brent. It's like, yeah, dude, he knows that. You don't have to say that. Brent sure had it coming, says the other guy. The way he was stealing some of your best suckers. And Farrell, being the only smart one of the three, is like, what are you guys doing? Stop talking about the murder I did that somebody else is going to get killed for. What are you doing? So Superman rips through the ceiling, as he does, and uh, comes down into the, f into the room and says, and says that, you know, he has to pay for his crime. Uh, Benny Farrell does. Benny Farrell, of course, tries to shoot Superman doesn't work. They bounce right off. And they only have 10 minutes to go before uh, Carnahan Peter is killed in an electric chair. That's not a lot of time. But luckily, Superman is very fast. He rushes across town or wherever he has to go. It'd be really convenient if it was just like right next door. But it's not. And uh, Peter is being led to the electric chair. And they are strapping him in. He's all strapped in. They've got the probably the little helmet thing on. They don't show it because that would be a lot for a children's comic. And they're about to flip on the switch. But Superman has made it to uh, the powerhouse, which supplies electricity to Metropolis and the prison. And he breaks uh, an important part on the dynamo, which is causing electricity. I don't know how power plants work. He, he breaks something. And he says this thing that just boggles my mind and actually makes me pretty mad, uh, which isn't hard to do, as you've all been able to see. He says, I hate to be destructive, but the situation demands it. No, that's not right at all. Superman loves to destroy things. He's always destroying things. Every single story, he's destroying things. I just think he's a liar. He's a real hypocrite, Superman is. So the electricity goes out, and the electric chair won't work, obviously, because it uses electricity. It's right there in the name. So now Superman has more time. So he takes Benny Farrell to the governor and tells him to confess, and he does. Which, if you know anything about the law, that is a, a confession under coercion and uh, is not admissible. So, uh, so that wouldn't have worked. But we'll, we'll pretend that it does. We then get uh, some resolution for Peter. Uh, he is talking to the executor of his father's estate. And his the guy, luck, uh, rightfully so, says, hey, you were gambling. And there's that clause that everyone knows about in the will. And Peter's sad, but the guy says, we will allow you to, you know, give advice about what you would like the money to go towards. Which is, I mean, I guess not quite the same thing as just giving him the money. Because he can't just say, well, I'd love it for you to give it to me, lol. But uh, he says that he wants to set up a home for wayward, underprivileged youths. To see that they don't succumb to the pitfalls I faced. Dude, you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth and you got everything you wanted as a kid. You're just an idiot, okay? These kids are, they have no parents and they're underprivileged, all right? Shut up. So it makes them into this, like, you're supposed to root for them. But guess what? I don't. I don't. Because I'm of the mind that you eat the rich. And I know he's not rich anymore, so technically he's fine, but I, I think he's just, he's being, he's, 
He's rewriting history. He's being revisionist, and I don't, I'm not here for it. And then we cut to six months later, and the school's been, uh, home's been established, and now all the kids are having a great time. They're not underprivileged anymore. They're living in a group home, and it's great. And that's the end of the Superman story. It's a bad one. I don't like it. I didn't like it at all. But maybe that's just me being nitpicky. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? But let's move on to the Zatara story. The Zatara story, as always, was written by Gardner F. Fox and Fred B. Gardiner. Gardiner also doing the art. Uh, and we joined Zatara. He has been spending his time uh, exposing fraudulent black magic tricksters. Uh, so the people who do, you know, phony, talking to the dead, stuff like that, seances... Um, all that kind of jazz, when Zatara, as we all know, is the master magician and really one of the few true magicians in the world. And he's in his apartment one night in his robe that has red and blue stars and yellow moons on it. He's like a bowl of lucky charms. Uh, he's just sitting there reading a paper when a woman just barges in through his apartment door, apartment 1006, and says, oh, please help me, a man is after me. It's like, well, did you try knocking first? Come on, rude. So Zatara, of course, is a great guy. And when the guy chasing this woman barges into the door as well, he, he uses his magic to make him be a little man. And so then we get this pretty funny image of this little guy. And he's trying to hold a big knife because he was carrying a knife previously. Uh, why the knife didn't change size like his clothes did. Don't ask me. I'm not a magician. Uh, so, but the the man's tiny, and he's so tiny he can't lift the knife, can't stab this lady. And Zatara tells him to reflect on his sins for a while. Which, like, okay, didn't know you were a priest, Zatara. Then he's like, okay, let me put on my my evening coat, not my evening coat, my regular coat, my uniform. And tell me why he was after you and who you are. And this woman, her name is Etta Nolan. Um, she found that Chalo, the gypsy magician, which gypsy is an offensive term, Romani, Romani gyp magician, um, he has re rediscovered the ancient black arts of the old Chaldees. Chalo, Chaldees, of course. So uh, this is like big news, apparently. This is like she had to barge into Zatara's apartment. And it's big news. So what do they do? Well, they're going to go to a magic show. I don't know why. Because uh, this woman really doesn't have anything to do with this. But uh, so, but Etta, apparently she knows that Chalo has rediscovered these black arts. And um, Etta had also discovered that he killed his brother to learn the secrets. Uh, she wanted to turn him over to the police for murder. Uh, which he then sent the man after her. And so now, but don't worry, she's with Sitara, and they're going to go see a magic show. They're going to see Blossom, the Chinese girl magician. Yep. So she makes a dancer disappear. She uh, cuts um, some pearls in half, but she doesn't really. You know, it just looks like it's sleight of hand, classic sleight of hand. Then is a part that's really weird and I'm really confused about still uh, a toad uh, you know a toad like a frog but a toad uh, appears on stage in a white 
sort of jagged bubble, sort of like a exclamatory bubble in comics. It's got all the pointy edges. And this this woman is like saying, help, help, the um, Blossom, the Chinese girl magician. And Zataro makes the toad disappear, but the toad doesn't disappear. And uh, Blossom gets so scared that she faints. But everybody else is just sitting at their table drinking wine, just having a great time. Except they do say, oh, I was so frightened. It, it was so real. I was so frightened. And But this guy's just like smoking a cigarette and this lady's drinking wine. Must not have been too scared. So then, Zatara, unable to figure out what's going on with the toad, he, or I guess he does figure it out, but he's not able to get rid of it. He realizes it's just a projection in three dimensions, unlike a motion picture, because this is the 1930s and movies are a big deal uh, still, even though like they've been around for like 20 years. But uh, he gets Etta her coat and they leave. And this is the part that gets really confusing about this toad incident. So... He, a man walks up to him and says, Zatara? Question mark. You were the only one in there tonight who saw the toad and the only one who could have averted a panic, which you did, you know. Okay, so if he's the only one who could see the toad, why does it matter? <laughs> you know, like, I can't see the toad. I'm, I'm one of those guys just sitting there smoking, drinking wine. I can't see the toad, so why should I freak out? Like, why would I panic if I can't see the toad? Oh, Blossom, the girl on stage, she... She fainted. Somebody get a doctor. Let me drink this uh, Merlot, which is a type of wine. But, uh, of course, the Tara stories never make any sense, so uh, let's just move past it. This man's name is John Dokar. The names in this issue are Buck Wild. John's not Buck Wild. Dokar is... It's, uh, it's just a weird name. I don't even know if it's real. He says, come with me to a seance I'm having at my house. And Zatara says, well, I don't believe in seances, even though Zatara has for sure talked to the dead uh, in an earlier issue. Uh, but I guess seances, in terms of their magicalness, are not. They're not magical at all. Okay, well, that's good to know. Uh, so they get to John Dokar's house, and who, who happens to be there? Chalo. Etta says, Zatara, I see Chalo. Zatara is apparently unable to see Chalo. Uh, he doesn't know what a window is, so instead he uses his backwards magic and makes uh, makes it so he can see through the wall. And he sees in there it's Chalo, and man, is he sinister. Uh, Zatara then makes it so that Chalo can't recognize Etta, and they have a nice little introduction like, oh, I'm delighted to meet you, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And Chalo knows Zatara, but he's like, oh, you don't believe in the black arts? And it's like, no, I know real magic. You're a fakey fake faker so chalo is asking zatara if he's challenging him because zatara says i can do whatever you can do but with real magic so chalo does he makes the toad appear again and it turns out that chalo was the one who made that toad appear at blossom's magic show i don't know why of course and zatara now knowing it's just a projection from chalo's mind he freezes chalo uh, or he just says stop, which makes me think like Chalo, he has to stop, but he just says, ouch, my head. So he can't like do the, do the toad. So then Zatara makes a fish appear to eat the toad. Good. He, challenge one goes to Zatara. Chalo then ups the ante and says he's going to summon the witches of Endor. Endor, not Andor. This isn't 
Star Wars. Uh, so Endor with an E. He does black magic, which, from what I'm seeing, looks like he's pouring uh, beakers into a big fish bowl, and they're making some sort of smoke. I guess black magic is science. But the witches of Endor appear, and man, are they ugly. Uh, even with very minimal art, they are not great to look at. And so Chala six these witches on this magician, but Satara being the master magician makes them say whatever he wants them to say rather than whatever Chalo wants. And then Chalo says that he wants the witches to kill Dokar, which is like, hey, what a weird thing to do at a seance that someone has thrown at their house. So, like, I throw a seance at my house, and the person doing the seance, the magician, they're like, haha, from my final trick, I'm going to kill the host. Why? What is wrong with you? Who raised you? I mean, I guess he did kill his own brother for magical secrets, but, like, come on, have some decorum. Have some decorum in someone else's home. So while the witches, which I don't know what they are, if they're people, like, or if they're, like, images on smoke or something, it's never explained. They, like, lurch towards Dokar, and while that's happening, Chalo presses a button on the floor, uh, and... Then suddenly Dokar dies. Uh, Zotaro banishes the witches and says, Hey, Chalo, you murdered him, you murderer. You knew the excitement of this magical demonstration would affect his heart and render him susceptible to suggestion. Which, like, that's nonsense. Someone's saying, like, Hey, witches, kill that guy. And the guy's like, Oh my gosh, these witches are going to kill me. And then he just dies. That's not how anything works. Like, that's not suggestion, that's nonsense. So, Zatara is suspicious. He goes down through the floor into the basement of Dokar's house. Which, again, this is Dokar's house. Which this ne- makes this next part all the m- more weird. In the basement of Dokar's house, there is a contraption attached to this button that Chalo pressed that, like, sticks a needle up into where Dokar is sitting into his leg, poisoning, presumably. When did they set this up? Because, like, this is not... This isn't Chalo's house. This is Dokar's house. So, like, did they, under, like, a ruse, like, Dokar, he was getting some work done on his basement, and as a part of that, they came down in there, and they installed a murder needle? It just doesn't... It's just, like... If this was Chalo's house, then it's a whole other kettle of fish. Like, of course you would have it set up. You bring in wealthy people who want to see a seance. As a part of that, you kill them. And then the next part, which I haven't told you about, happens. So, uh, Zatara has discovered this murder needle uh, trap. And he then kind of goes inside of the electrical system for some reason. uh, To keep Etta safe and to find out what's up. So, he's like looking through all of the light bulbs in the house as a sort of it's it's kind of cool it's a cool idea it's it's also really silly but it's very cool uh so she he sees etta and she's just you know politely waiting in the waiting room reading a book uh, while all this murder is happening and he then sees uh chalo and his two associates talking about dokar's jewels now that he's dead they can take them and flee so zatara goes finds the the jewels in a safe 
uh, and takes them all because uh, what he says as he's doing it, he says, what a fortune and precious stones. This must be Dakor's Dokar. Well, now it's called Dakor. And then it says Dokar. Okay, well, just the letterer. I mean, I'm assuming Gardner forgot what him and Fox named this guy. So Dakor or Dokar, however you want to say it. Uh, this must be Dokar's lifelong collection. He collected rare jewels. What a rich person thing to do. It's like, oh, I collect stamp uh, stamps. I collect Hot Wheels cars. No, I collect rare jewels. All right. Stupid rich people. Uh, so he takes them all and hides them away from Chalo. And so once Chalo and his associates open the safe, they're all gone. And they're, of course, suspicious of Zatara because he has disappeared. And But they didn't care, I guess. They didn't chase after him or anything. They just said, oh, he went into the floor. That's normal. And went about their scheme. He then comes out of one of the light bulbs, Zatara does, uh, and, and is about to leave with Etta when uh, one of Chalo's associates comes through the door with a gun. He makes him float upside down so he can't shoot him with the gun and then puts Etta into a car that speeds away. And Zatara says, now I'm going to deal with Chalo. So Chalo and his associates are talking and they're like, vanquish Zatara with your arts. And one of them's like, gladly, I will. So one of them makes snakes come out of the ceiling. And Zatara's like, well, I'm not scared. I know these are fake. And he makes them burn away like paper. And then Zatara basically makes the entire house, like, sentient, almost. Uh, or everything can move. So, like, the tables are grabbing Chalo. And there's, like, lobster claws coming out of the ground. And a clown in a painting. I guess not a clown. Maybe William Shakespeare. It looks William Shakespeare-like. Hits Chalo on the head. And uh, Zatara turns fire into a fire guy to be his friend. Uh, a summon. He does a summon. And he. we then learn that one of the associates is named Arco. This is the first time we're hearing this. It says, and leads Zatara to, Zark, to, to Arco. Okay. Um... So the fireman gets Arco, and then uh, Zatara, like all the, well, not all, a lot of the superheroes of this time, they get a non-admissible uh, confession under duress, which uh, goes against the due process clause of the Constitution, Bill of Rights, something like that. Uh, basically, and, th- and you know what's funny? This was just decided that confessions under duress are not admissible like four years before this you know this comic came out so like they knew that this is not admissible uh but then again neither are vigilante activities so uh all everything they're doing is uh illegal so but he gets a confession from arco about all the bad things that they've done and then he does the same with chalo uh, and Chalo admits that he killed his brother to learn the secrets or whatever. And he tried to kill Etta because she knew about it. And then he, he confesses to killing. And this is, it's Dakor again? Here. My gosh. Okay. Maybe it was always supposed to be Dakor and Dokar was the typo. Who knows? We'll never know. Neither would Dakor because he's dead. Or Dokar. He confesses to killing him to steal his jewels. 
then for whatever reason, Zatara says like, hey, my guy on fire, he's doing a good job in inside that house. And you see smoke coming out of the house. Bro, this is Dokar's house. This is not Chalo's house. You're killing a dead man's... Well, sorry. You're burning a dead man's house down. Like, what if he was going to sell it? What if he's got family? Like, that could use... Like, sell that house for money. Like, the Great Depression is not very far away. Like, in the past. People are people are hurting. Except for Dokar. He collects rare jewels. But he then says, you know, thanks. Or, actually, Edda then says... Thanks, Zatara. You know, I knew you were the only one that could do it. And Zatara says, yeah, no no worries. Of course, I'm the best. He doesn't say that, but that's basically... That's what he's thinking. But that's the... That's the Z- Z- that is the Zatara issue... F- or story of issue 24 of Action Comics. Now, let's put that nonsense in the rear view and move on. More Fun Comics number 55 was released April 2nd, 1940, with a cover date of May 1940. And we actually have some debuts in this one, some pretty big ones, I think. I think he's a pretty cool character. Um, I've always been really, really interested in him. So uh, let's talk about it. It's going to be Dr. Fate, Kent Kent Nelson, the original. His wife, or at this time, I don't know if they're married, Inza Kramer. And uh, Wotan, or Wotan, uh, a longtime enemy of Dr. Fate. Uh, but he's not the first story in More Fun Comics, uh, number 55, The Spectre is. He is the cover art. He is he has his little face up in the corner like Sandman does in Adventure Comics. Uh, so let's talk about The Spectre story. And it's written by Jerry Siegel and drawn by Bernard Bailey. Uh, as all the previous Spectre stories, previous, there's been only two, uh, uh, stories have been. So uh, let's get into it. We we come into the story of uh, with Jim Corrigan, who is uh, the Spectre, secretly. He's also secretly dead. Uh, and his, I guess, partner, uh, uh, police detective partner i guess it's not really clear but i mean i assume uh wayne grant they are going to uh, a bank uh, to talk to the bank manager because the bank manager has news about a crime and he says that this clerk is embezzling funds and jim corrigan being the good police detective that he is uh is you know getting information from everybody else who works in the bank and he talks to uh this man simmons the bookkeeper and uh, using his uh, specter, you know, omnipotence, not omnipotence, omniscience, uh, to read his mind, knows that Simmons is actually the one who's embezzling. He finds a $10,000 bond on his person, uh, which is a lot of money in this time, for, especially for a bookkeeper at a bank, and uh, accuses Simmons of being the one embezzling. Simmons pulls out a gun and is going to escape, but Simmons, not Simmons, Corrigan uh, lets the, spe- the specter out of his body. And uh, the specter stops Simmons by basically uh, making it seem like to everybody other than Simmons that Simmons is talking to himself. He's acting like he's gone insane. Uh, so, you know, the specter does the thing where it's 
you know, they try to shoot the gun at him. He uses his powers to stop them from shooting him. And he says, look into my eyes. And of course, when they look into the specter's eyes, they see death um, and uh, what's awaiting them in the afterlife sort of situation. So he confesses to the crime. And this brings me to a a point that I, I kind of got confused about or wondered why it was made a point of in the first story. So in the first story, in the last few panels, if you remember, we see Jim Corrigan and he's making the Spectre costume. And the Spectre costume is a full white bodysuit with a white face, like mask, or like he paints his face white or something. Uh, And then green, you know, Speedo, green Speedo trunks, and then a green hooded cape. But you obviously can't see this because this is an audio medium, but the Spectre just comes out of Jim Corrigan's body and Jim Corrigan's body stays there. So I don't know if, uh, I don't know why he made a costume if the Spectre always looks like that. Like, is the Jim Corrigan body fake and the Spectre is real? I don't know. It's a very, it's a very, very interesting topic to ponder because why make the costume if you don't need to and why is it always it's always Jim separating himself from the Spectre and the Spectre going off and doing things and Jim kind of just staying there or at least the Jim body I should say because I guess Jim is the Spectre so but I digress uh he gets he gets his man and uh Grant Wayne Grant I think is it's been it's been like two minutes and I've completely forgotten Wayne Grant uh, and Jim Corgan bring him to the police station to, you know, put him in jail. And Grant is like, why don't you, you know, come, let's hang out like old times. And Jim says, no, can't make it. Uh, and then he thinks a ghost can't follow normal pursuits. Well, why not, Jim? I mean, I get it. Like, you have a job. Like, you, you work for God now. Uh, but I'm. But is that like a, it's like a 24-7 job? You can't never get a day off? Sad. Sad. That's bad. All of the all of God's you know people on Earth should go on strike and unionize so they get better working conditions. Uh, Jim is walking off. He's gonna walk to his house or wherever he's gonna go, and he gets hit by a truck and uh, and dies. Sad. Just kidding. He doesn't die, but uh, Grant thinks he died. He says he says to Jim's body or Jim. He says they've murdered you, and Jim's like, uh, no, they haven't. I'm, I'm fine. No broken bones. And Grant's, of course, he's like, wow, that's a miracle. They were driving very fast. And the guys specifically were talking in the panel. They were like, I'd get that, you know, interfering copper. They said copper, not just cop. Because it's, uh, it's 1940, so you got to talk like that. Uh, so the specter jumps out of Jim's body while Jim continues to have this conversation with Grant and chases after the dudes in the car. And he lays on the hood like uh, kind of like Kate Winslet in Titanic, like draw me like one of your French girls, which is kind of funny. Uh, that's probably going to be the primo panel. Uh, so look for that on the Instagram. Uh, and they, of course, get freaked out. Uh, the Spectre makes himself all big, so they look like at his big face. And that scares them. And they are, of course, distracted from the road and can't see the road. And so they drive off a cliff. Uh, but they are stopped from hitting the ground and they are put back onto the road. And they turn around and flee. And the Spectre's like, well, that's 
weird. I didn't do that. And he turns around, and he sees someone that looks a lot like uh, Zatanna. Sorry, not Zatanna. She's not around yet. Zatara. And, but it's not him. I thought it was, because it's top hat, uh, like tuxedo, mustache. But he also has, like, a pointy goatee, so you know he's evil. (laughs) And he says, I am Zor, like yourself, a spirit confined to Earth. Only through the centuries I have spread evil upon this world. And, of course, Spectre's like, well, that's not cool, dude. Like, that's exactly the exact opposite of what I do. What I do so now you got to fight me. So they do. And in their fight, they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, like, they get so big that they're out in space. And Zor gets much bigger than the Spectre because, obviously, he's had more time. Jim's only been the Spectre for, I don't know, probably a few months at this point. I mean, if we go by publication time equals outside time, uh, which, I mean, later is not the case, but with these ones, you could say it is. Uh, he's only been in for a couple months. Uh, so he's not quite as powerful as Zor. Zor's had centuries uh, to get um, good at what he does. Uh, so Zor disappears, and, you know, the Spectre is confused about that. So he goes back to the Jim Corrigan body and kind of says goodbye to Grant. Then we cut to... Uh, well, first I should say, Jim now thinks that since Zor knows who he is, which I don't know how he knows that, because it doesn't really even say anywhere that like Zor now knows that the Spectre, because like the point, of, the whole point of the Spectre is so that it hides Jim's identity, I guess. Uh, I mean, just like any superhero persona. So, but Zor apparently knows all about Jim. Corrigan now. So Jim gets in his car, which I don't know why he still uses a car, I guess, to keep up appearances. Uh, and he says, could he possibly plan to harm Clarice, his former fiance? And that's exactly what Zor plans to do. He disguises himself as Jim Corrigan and and pl- uh, just toys with Clarice's feelings and says, uh, you know, I couldn't, couldn't stay away. Let's elope. And she's, of course, she's like, yes, let's, because she loves Jim Corrigan. And he's been acting so strangely. So they drive off. We then cut to Jim, and he's made it to the Winston mansion where Clarice lives with her mother. And says, can I see Clarice? And her mother says, well, I just saw her drive off with you like a few moments ago. What are you doing? Where is she? You should know where she is. I don't know. So Jim turns into the Spectre and races after the car. Or presumably in the direction of the car. He... Catches up with them, and uh, Zor and him have a sort of fight on top of the car, or a conversation, I'd say. It's not really a fight, because uh, the Spectre says, release that girl, and Zor says, but I prefer not to. Uh, so, so there. And Zor then cha- takes the car and sends it into another dimension, which the uh, Spectre just knows. He can just tell that he's escaped into another dimension, but he can't figure out which one. We then cut to Zor, uh, disguised as Jim Corrigan, with Clarice in this other dimension. It is just a dimension of all blackness. And they're just a car flying through this dark dimension. Not not the Doctor Strange thing. This is different. And way earlier. Uh, so technically, Doctor Strange did steal that. So just, just know. Uh, Zor takes off his disguise, or undoes his magical disguise, and... Uh, Clarice is so scared that she does faint. 
it's just so it's spooky and scary for her and she's a mere mortal uh, unaware of the the magic around her so she uh passes out and then she's then zor like picks her up out of the car and must take her back to the regular dimension or wherever he lives uh, he says, it's been a long time since I've had such a lovely guest, which is creepy as hell. This is a passed out woman. All right, you evil man. I mean, I get he's evil, but like, gross. Uh, he, he then also says, one kiss of death and you, you shall be imprisoned here in this dimension for all time. Don't kiss unconscious women. It's just not cool. Uh, but before he can be a real creep, uh, he is uh, faded away into another place uh we then flash back to the specter uh at right after zor has uh, disappeared with clarice and he said if only i could combat zor somehow he's like you know who i have to ask the voice Psst, it's god uh the voice who is god uh he flies up into space the specter does uh so high up into uh i guess heaven uh it's obviously not said but heaven he asks the voice uh to you know help him save clarice she's a helpless pawn you know she didn't do nothing other than love jim corrigan and we've, we're all guilty of that uh so the voice summons zor and says this matter must be settled between you the specter tells zor free the girl free free clarice and the and zor says the specter asks favors of zor ha huh, he refuses which is you know such a baller move because like the specter is all powerful uh and zor is too i don't know where zor gets his powers from but he's also all powerful so i think it's just like very cool of him to to say no i i'm not gonna do what you tell me uh mr man wearing uh underwear no shirt and a hooded cape i just don't think you look ridiculous i don't think i don't think he looks ridiculous i think the specter actually has a really cool costume even though it's kind of silly uh, but Zor refuses and then just disappears. He's like, I don't care about what you say. I don't care about what the voice says. I'm leaving. But the voice gives the specter the power to track Zor through the dimension. So he's now got, you know, um, not the upper hand, but a more level playing field. Zor can't just disappear into whatever dimension he wants without the specter being able to pursue him. So the specter does pursue him to whatever dimension Zor normally lives in. He has this big castle because even though you're an, you know, an undying, uh, eternal, omnipotent being, doesn't mean you don't need a place to live. So he has a, he has a castle in a spooky dimension. The uh, Zor sees the specter uh, coming up to his castle and is like, ha ho, I'm, I've got a trap and I'm prepared. And the specter, being a ghost, walks right through the wall and finds Clarice on this table where uh, Zor was going to give her the kiss of death, but but stopped him. Uh, but as he's rushing towards her, he is engulfed by uh, a pillar of light, and he cannot move at all. Zor then explains that uh, he's been trapped in a para paralysis ray that obviously works on uh, the specter for whatever reason. And the Zor just plans on keeping the specter here forever, uh, like a like a living statue. Very creepy, very super creepy of this creepy man. Uh, the specter 
in an attempt to bargain with Zor, says that he will give him the formula for creating life. Why Zor would care about being able to do that, I don't know, but he does. So he is going to release the specter, and the specter will give him the piece of paper that he has written the formula down. Uh, it'd be kind of cool if this was like the, um, not anti-life equation, but I guess just the life equation that the fourth world is so obsessed with, uh, or one of the formulas that the fourth world is so obsessed with, but that hasn't been created yet, won't be created for a while. I just think it'd be really cool if that was, if we, you know what, in our headcanon, we will say that this is the life equation, the opposite of the anti-life equation. I think that's cool. Uh, and no one can stop us from thinking that. So, Zor turns off the ray, and uh, of course, that's exactly what the Spectre wanted him to do. He then uh, rushes after Zor, and Zor says, you forget that I am capable of crushing you. And they begin battling. Uh, it seems like Zor has gotten the upper hand. He uh, forces the formula out of Spectre's hands, grabs it, but that's exactly what the Spectre wanted. He was doing a little bit of trickery. And he has now turned the paralysis ray onto Zor. Now he's paralyzed forever. And uh, the Spectre, being the guy who, you know, he doesn't pull any of his punches. He is just going to leave him there forever. For all eternity. <laughs> to go slowly mad inside of his own brain. Because he cannot die. He doesn't need food. He'll just be there forever. And I think that's... Uh, that's pretty. That's a, another baller move, but this time by the Spectre. Uh, and that's what I love about the Spectre so much, is he is so ruthless. The Spectre takes Clarice back to our dimension, I guess, uh, if you want to call it that. And he wakes her up in her mansion, where she lives. And she says that she had this terrible experience, and uh, Jim Corrigan, as he uh, is wont to do, uh, gaslights her <laughs> into thinking it was just a nightmare. And... Uh, Clarice says, you know, it's silly for us to be apart. We care about each other so much. We, you know, can't, why can't we be together? And Jim says, romance is not for me. Goodbye. Uh, just kind of cuts it off. And then he, uh, he's the specter again. He says, as Jim Corrigan, I loved you, Clarice, deeply. But now I am the specter. My work is to destroy evil. And to that end, I dedicate myself. Which is like, that's cool. You know what? He's got a job, and he is dedicated to it. And I commend him on this, even though he loses the love of his life, and that's very nice. It makes the Spectre a sympathetic character, whereas otherwise, you know, this omnipotent, super-powerful being would be like, why should I care about him? And this is why we care about him, because he's lost the love of his life by becoming the Spectre. So yeah, man, just like Spectre, the Spectre comics, they're, they're good. They're good. You know, magic can get kind of silly. And some of this Zor stuff was a little bit silly, but I, I don't think it's even close to the level of silliness that Zatara gets up to. Uh, because, like, they don't have to explain why the Spectre can do things. these things. Like, he doesn't have to do magic spells or anything. He can just do them because he is empowered by God himself or herself. Uh, so, themselves. I, you know what? I don't think God is gendered. I'll go... I'll go uh, themselves. Yeah. Uh, but that is, uh, that is the Spectre, uh, story in More Fun Comics number 55. Now let's move on to another one of my, uh, very, very favorite characters, Dr. Fate, the introduction of Dr. Fate. All right. So Dr. Fate written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Howard Sherman. 
Uh, Dr. Fate, this is the original version of Dr. Fate, Kent Nelson. We don't find that out in this original story. It's actually kind of a very interesting first story uh, because Dr. Fate is already established as someone who has, is well-renowned, at least by uh, the villain Wotan or Wotan, depending on how you pronounce it, W-O-T-A-N, uh, and Inza Kramer, uh, I, who, I mean, is, is his love interest. So we don't know he's Kent Nelson yet. We don't even know anything about him, like where he came from, or uh, his whole, you know, thing. But uh, we are introduced to him, Inza Kramer, and Wotan in this first issue, in this first story. And I will say this, right off the bat, Wotan, or Wotan, I gotta pick one. I'm gonna go with Wotan. It sounds more mystical. Wotan... I think that he is basically established to look like he looks in this first story. I, I don't know a lot about him in the future, but I will say good job by, I don't know if it was Gardner Fox or if it was Howard Sherman who made this choice, but Wotan looks like a villain. Like, and he's not just some guy. Like with Superman, Lex Luthor is just kind of some guy. And Batman, all of his people are just some guy. Wotan is like a spooky mystical looking guy he's got blue skin and he's got like very evil hair and beard and outfit it's good it's very good a lot of these early golden age villains are kind of just like i said just some guy but moton's good he's good uh so we start out with a, kind of a little bit of a um i don't know if you want to say throwback but reference uh to another one of gardner fox's works uh, Zatara, because if you'll remember, just like a few minutes ago, uh, Zatara was dealing with someone uh, who had learned the mystical arts of the Chaldees. And I did look it up because I was like, well, this is two references to the same thing. Is that anything? Did he just make this up and is just using it in two of his mystical stories? But the Chaldees or Chaldea, which is an area in ancient Babylonia, um, in uh, the, well, not ancient Babylonia, but it was later assimilated into uh, Babylonia uh, in the late 10th or early 9th and mid-6th centuries BC. So way long ago, way, 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 way long ago. So that's really cool that they're like, these are ancient people and their arts are mystical and powerful and, you know, mysterious. And so these secret practitioners of magic are using these for reference. I think that's really cool, and uh, I commend Gardner Fox for his good work. But let's get into the actual story. Uh, so, Wotan is going to commit uh, a secret rite, or like a plan. He's doing something to... Okay, basically he's made it so that when a certain girl dies, uh, that Dr. Fate will be at his mercy. Through mystical sacrifices or rituals uh it's it's not super clear but it's gonna happen and it just so happens to be that the girl that needs to die is this inza kramer wotan uses his magic to hypnotize a random man uh and hypnotizes him to go choke uh inza kramer to death and it's actually this is I mean, the comics authority doesn't exist yet, I don't believe. But we all know that 
Golden Age comics that kind of um, not necessarily like sanitize things, but they don't they're not graphic and violent at this point in time because uh, they're for children at this point uh, or they're regarded as being for children. But but Wotan's exact instructions to this man, this nameless man at this point, is to go to North Road where Inza Kramer lives, find the girl in apartment 2X and choke her to death. Like, he's giving him exact step-by-step instructions on the visceral way he's supposed to kill this woman. And I just thought that was kind of, it was like, wow, that's outside of the norm. Um, and then after that, forget everything. So, because he doesn't want anything tied back to Wotan. So, you know, that's just smart. That's just smart eviling. Now, the guy gets in a cab and goes to North Road and uh, knocks on the door of 2X and Inza Kramer opens the door and he does do this bonehead thing that killers in this time do. They have to say what they're going to do. So he says, I've been sent to kill you. Before he's even gotten in the door, she has just opened the door and the door is like, open to crack because she's no dummy. Can't just open it wide for whoever, you know. For every Tom, Dick, and Harry who knocks on the door, she's a woman who lives by herself. She's got to be safe. And he just says, I've been sent to kill you. And well, she says, I don't want you to do that. She just says, no, no, Dr. Fate, uh, who she knows. And a cloud of uh, coal black smoke appears in the middle of the room. And a voice comes out and it says, uh, you called Inza. I, Dr. Fate, heard you and I appear. And the man can't hear the voice. I don't know how he knows that there is a voice. Uh, but... Uh, if he can't hear it, why would he know that a voice is happening? We then cut to Wotan, and he is obviously watching over this, either through the eyes of, of this man that he's hypnotized, or just watching the man in a third-person perspective. Who knows? Uh, it's not clear, but he you know, discovers, ah, fate is here in America. I must do something to destroy him. So... Uh, Wotan does a magic spell, and he's going to set the building on fire, fire to destroy Dr. Fate forever. Uh, the building is set on fire, and the man is broken out of his trance because of it, uh, because that's how magic works, I guess. And we see, uh, for a brief moment, the, the cloud open and Dr. Fate comes out. Now let's talk a bit about Dr. Fate's costume at the moment. It's pretty much exactly what his costume looks like to this day. Uh, we've got the blue sort of long sleeves on his legs and like basically like the specter, but, uh, but blue on the bodysuit. We got the yellow underpants on the outside. You have a gold cape with some gold I don't know if they're necessarily pauldrons, if that's the right word, on the shoulders, uh, but some some gold uh, accents on the shoulders, and then a uh, gold cape, like I said, and the helmet. The helmet looks a little bit different than it does in, in later iterances, but uh, iterances, wow, that was good. Uh, but it does look, from all the you know beats uh, of of Doctor Fate throughout the years, it looks it's got all of the hallmarks, except it does have a weird. Sort of looks like a target right on his chest, uh, which is kind of weird, uh, and I didn't remember that being there. He doesn't have the onk yet, which is, I mean, what he has in the future uh, once it becomes connected to Egyptian lore. Uh, so I guess that will replace the weird target uh, that's on his uh, chest. 
So he, he, you know, reaches for Inza and he uh, says to the man who we find out his name is Thomas Strawley. And he says to him, he says, you'll forget everything you know of this night uh, because I, Dr. Fate, order you. And uh, Dr. Fate uses his cape and kind of rushes or like brings it over top of Thomas. And for a second, he feels an intense bitter cold. And then he's out on the street uh, unharmed. And he's like, well, uh, but Dr. Fate, like, where's Dr. Fate? And then he's like, who is Dr. Fate? And then I guess he just goes about his uh, day. So the next panel, we do get a little kind of, uh, not necessarily an origin, but an uh, explanation of who is Dr. Fate. It says it right at the top. It says, who is Dr. Fate? And I'm just going to read it verbatim uh, for you. Uh, because that's easier than me just explaining it. So he says, student of ancient mysteries that were partially destroyed when Caesar burned Alexandria's library. I don't know if that's true, if Caesar was the one who burned Alexandria's library, or the library of Alexandria, as it's known. Um, that's not my field of study, uh, but I know that that library burned, so they could have gotten that right. Delver into the unknown science of the occult and the world. Alchemist and physicist extraordinary Dr. Fate has learned the ultimate secret of the universe. The true conversion of energy into matter and matter into energy. Uh, I also don't know if that's possible or if a thing that is that a thing that we can just do. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I think so. Because I think everything is conservation of matter sort of situation. But it's, it's weird because then it says some of this Dr. Fate is explaining to Inza even now. How does Inza know who he is? And But oh, so sorry, I should say, if Inza knows who he is, doesn't she already know all this stuff? It seems weird. But uh, Dr. Fate then says to Inza that, he, that she located Wotan for him. I don't know how... Um, but she forgot about his powers. You always need to guard against him. You know, he found you and known that I was near, uh, that, and says, remember that energy is the secret of, of it all. Okay, cool. Thanks, Dr. Fate. And then he like, just does a little bit of a show off sort of, uh, move and he turns a vase into, uh, dust and Anza, of course, is shocked She's like, oh, it's dust. You turn the vase into dust. And he's like, well, <laughs> kind of. I merely release the energy atoms comprising the vase, changing them into atoms of dust. As easily could I destroy a human body, a train, an entire body. He's like, I could murk you right now at a snap of my fingers, but I don't because I'm a good guy, maybe. We don't know that much about Dr. Fate yet. So he says, come, we must pay a visit to Wotan. Uh, and they are you know, whistled away on the wind uh, to Wotan's lair. Uh, meanwhile, Wotan is trying to find a way to overpower Dr. Fate. And at that moment, Dr. Fate appears. Isn't that lucky for Wotan? He doesn't have to, like, break a sweat to go and find him. So that's nice. He doesn't have to leave the comfort of his lair to find Dr. Fate. It's always so nice of heroes to do that. Wotan is like, well, I've got you now because I'm going to release gorillas? Yeah, gorillas, uh, to take you down. So 
uh, two gorillas attack Dr. Fate and Inza, and Dr. Fate, being just so powerful, just flips, judo flips that uh, gorilla onto his back. Uh, but Inza is not ha- faring as well because she's just a human, just a human woman. And so he gives some of his strength to Inza, or he says just, I give you my strength. So all of it, I guess. So And then Inja, Inja, Inza just slaps that gorilla into the wall. And Wotan takes this moment to uh, attack Dr. Fate while he is uh, weakened, in a weakened state. And Dr. Fate reaches down into his great reserve of force uh, and and, uh, creates uh, tentacles of flame to attack at Wotan. Uh, Wotan is like, ouch, but wait, I too have studied the mysteries of the past, Dr. Fate. You are the only man I acknowledge my equal, even perhaps my superior. If you die, the clumsy, ignorant moderns would be my slaves. All right, dude, not cool. So Wotan then says, I know the secret of eternal energy too. And he makes fire come out of his hands, but he aims it at Inza. Because he knows that uh, Dr. Fate is weak against uh, attacking his beloved or... Or I guess we don't know that she's his beloved. Just the lady that he brought into harm's way for some reason. Uh, he even says, you have me checkmated. Your source of pa- of energy and mine are the same. Neither can kill the other except by surprise. But Inza, she will die. Hmm. Ha ha. And Wotan's like, well, she won't die if you listen to me, Dr. Fate. Go away and leave Inza with me as hostage. And Inza, meanwhile, is like, I'm burning. Save me, Fate. And Dr. Fate doesn't take long to think about it. He just uh, punches Wotan in the face. And he says, sometimes I think a good fight accomplishes more than all the learning in the world. That's a bad message. Kids, don't spend all your time fighting. Go to school. Get good grades. and, And make a good career for yourself. And uh, Wotan, being caught off guard, falls all the way out of this high building that I guess we're in, um, to the street below. And Inza, rightfully so, because fate just said it, how did you do that if you guys are on the same energy source or whatever? And he says, well, like I said, I caught him off guard, broke the spell of that energy, and he was a mortal man again. Which, I mean, them's the rules. Them's the rules. I don't, I don't make them. That's just how they are. And uh, Inza asks, do you think Wotan is dead or died or whatever? And Dr. Fate says, perhaps and perhaps not. I'm going to go find out now. And that's it. And that's the end of the comic. Because it then says, what does Dr. Fate mean? What do you mean does, what does it mean? He means he might be dead or he might not be dead. Where is he going? He's going to check the body. It said that. He said he's going to go find out right now. So it, we need to follow the weird adventures of Dr. Fate in next month's more fun comics. And you know what? I think we will. I think we all thought about not, but I think we will. I'm just kidding. I never thought about not. Of course, Dr. Fate, he's too important. He's too important to DC society. I mean, maybe not anymore, but he used to be. Uh, but that's more fun comics number 55. Uh, it's we're getting we're getting these these issues are getting jammed packed, just chock-a-block full of heroes and their adventures, some good, some bad. Uh, but that's that's how it goes, you know? Uh, So let's move on to Detective Comics number 39.
Detective Comics number 39 was released April 4th, 1940, with a cover date of May 1940. Uh, you know the drill, Batman, Crimson Avenger, no debuts in this one, uh, just, a, just a classic doubleheader, Batman, Crimson Avenger. So, let's get into the Batman issue. Uh, written and drawn by Bill Finger and Bob Kane, and inked by Jerry Robinson. Uh, the first post-debut... Uh, of Robin, the Boy Wonder. And he does Robin Boy Wonder things in this one, too. Uh, so that's good. It's good to know. Uh, it's actually kind of interesting. It seems to have gotten... The art, the art, I should say, seems to have gotten better, different. I, I don't really know how to describe it. But, like, this first page, it's... It's a full full page. Like I don't know if that's if it's considered a splash page. I don't really know the terminology all that well. But it's taking up the entire page, just one big panel, and it seems to be foreshadowing. Sorry, it doesn't seem to be foreshadowing. It is foreshadowing what's going to happen in the issue, which I think is kind of fun, because we see Batman and Robin, and they're uh, in what looks to be like a ship or an arena or something, <clears throat> something made of wood. And there's these, all these uh, Chinese men shirtless because that's how you that's how you show that they're like really cool and, and powerful and strong. Uh, and they're rushing at them with weapons. And there is a man sitting on a throne on a like a high dais uh, behind, in front of like a big statue of a green man monster something. It's very cool. It's a very cool image. Um, it's, I think it's I think it's pretty tight, and uh, I guess shows that. Batman's, you know, improving. I mean, I'm also reading uh, the DC Universe version, uh, which is, I think they did a lot of cleanup on these because uh, they certainly look like they're way more polished than they probably were in the actual comic. But that's the luxury that we get living in 2023. Uh, so we get to the actual story of this issue. Uh and we, it's, it, is, it is night in the city that we're in, uh, which is not yet Gotham City. We see a man, a millionaire, he's, he's called, Henry Crandall. He's going to his car, probably going to go out to the theater or the opera. You know what millionaires do. And he is suddenly taken from behind by two men and gagged. Uh, not far away, at the same instant, another millionaire, John Cobb, is uh, walking to his car. When suddenly he's also attacked by um, figures springing from the shadows. But he has a chauffeur who, who says, hey, what's going on here? And that chauffeur, for being good at his job and trying to protect his employer, gets a hatchet to the face. And you know what's crazy? In the last issue, or I guess in the last comic in this episode, More Fun Comics number 55, I was like, wow, it's kind of graphic that he says, that Wotan says, hey, go choke this lady to death. But there's just a straight-up image of a dude getting a, a hatchet to the face in, in this on this page. So uh, take what I said about comics kind of being very, you know, tamed down for children. Nah, they're not. That's on me for giving you false information. So, but I digress. Um, the next day, uh, it's all over the papers. Two millionaires kidnapped. The ransom is $100,000, which back in the day was a lot of money. Still a lot of money. I could really use $100,000 if anyone's giving it away. But definitely a lot of money in 1940. So uh, Bruce Wayne, 
doing his thinking. He's like, hmm, the chauffeur was killed with a hatchet. Hmm. He's thinking. He's doing his detectiving. And he's like, I got it. A hatchet. There's only one kind of people that kill with a hatchet. Now you may be thinking. You may be thinking of of many numerous different kinds of people that kill with a hatchet. But Batman says there's only one, so you're wrong. I also thought there was more than one, but you're wrong. Uh, but as he's about to say who it is, uh, Robin says, hey, look. Or I guess I guess right now he, it's Dick Grayson. Dick says, look, there's an ad in the paper addressed to the Batman. And uh, it says, Batman, a friend needs your help. Uh, it's very small. It says, come at once. To where? I don't know. That must be in smaller type that is not visible from this distance. And Robin then says uh, something that's super whack. He says, the type was set in Chinese style. The sender did it purposely. Purposely? Purposefully? Hmm. Uh, And Bruce says, yes, to let me know he was Chinese. Oh, wonderful. Good. A friend, of course, Wong of Chinatown. He helped me in the case of the Ruby Idol. So that's cool. Cool callback. We all remember that uh, issue. So that's cool. Uh, I don't know why, how he knows it's Wong. He only knows one Chinese person, I guess. He's like, only one Chinese person could ever want to get in contact with Batman. It's Wong, the unofficial mayor of Chinatown. So Batman goes to uh, Chinatown. He tells Dick, stay home. This is way too dangerous for you. Uh, which is like, why did you bring Dick Grayson into this life of crime fighting if you're like, nah, you can't go with me on this errand to Chinatown, which should be pretty safe. Uh, it's too dangerous. It's like, all right, well, what can he do as Robin? Nothing, I guess. Polish the Batmobile. So Batman goes alone to Chinatown, and he climbs in through Wong's window, and he's like, oh, good evening, Wong. And uh, Wong explains to Batman uh, that opium has been uh, popping up in Chinatown, uh, because a new tong, which I inferred to be gang or uh, mob uh, of gangsters, uh, has arisen called the Green Dragon. Uh, they are evil men and work many wicked enterprises. Uh, they're selling opium to my people. Though it is dangerous to do so, I have gathered, gathered much information. Uh, we then see a painting move aside and a an evil eye it even says an evil eye watches them watches this exchange wong says by tomorrow night at eight o'clock i'll have some more information about uh where the green dragon is uh located where their like hideout is and you can help me capture them and batman says you know what wong you got it i'm there we're best friends even though i've only talked to you twice we then see as Batman, you know, says he'll do it and he leaves the people behind the hole in the wall behind the painting. And it's two uh, men, Chinese men, uh, one holding a hatchet. And they say, oh, we'll be there too, Batman. So the next night, Batman, of course, again says, uh, sorry, Dick, uh, it's very dangerous. You can't come with me. Don't leave unless I'm not back in a few hours. Well, Batman Seems dumb to have a partner and then just tell that partner, just don't come with me. I don't actually want you around. It's just super mean. So Batman goes alone again to Wong's house. And he, you know, he comes into the Wong's room or office and Wong doesn't do anything or say anything to him. And he says, Wong, I'm here. 
but why are you staring at me? It's me, Batman. And he goes and he goes over there to like touch Wong on the shoulder to be like, hey, what's wrong, buddy? Uh, best friend Wong. And he discovers that Wong is dead and has a hatchet in the back of his head. And that's bad. And it's very cool. In all these shots of, of Wong's office, we see the ruby idol on the pedestal from the, you know, so that everyone remembers that that's where he met Wong. I think that's very fun. Batman then discovers that uh, Wong, in must what must have been his dying moments, has scratched onto his desk Pier 3, which is located near Chinatown. That's good to know. We'll keep that in our back pocket for later. Suddenly, Batman sees a shadow on the floor, and he quickly drops as a hatchet flies through the air and embeds itself in the wall. We then see two men running at Batman. Uh, they are called the dreaded Chinese hatchet men, which is, you know, fun and uh, very, very on point because they do use hatchet to attack. Uh, Batman does the old uh, pulling the cloth, the tablecloth out from underneath the dishes without moving them. But this time he does move them and the dishes are the hatchet men. This is not a tablecloth. It's a rug on the floor. I'm sorry if that was a confusing explanation of what was happening. Uh, he does make a funny little pun. He says, slippery, isn't it? Yeah, dude, it is slippery when you pull a rug out from under me. I do fall down. And then Batman leaps to attack. Uh, and he's he's fighting one of them when another one uh, comes up behind him. But Batman, being the awesome hand-to-hand combatant that he is, uh, senses the danger behind him and swiftly moves to block the attack and grab him uh, by the weapon. And they, they struggle with each other. And they're by a window, and uh, through uh, uh, their fighting, they fall out of the window, down the roof, and are plummeting to presumably their death. Uh, But luckily for Batman, he lands on top of uh, his attacker, the Hatchet Man, and I presume, it doesn't say, but I presume that the Hatchet Man dies, Uh, Batman survives, because it says that the hatchet man acts as a shock absorber um so yeah so batman's fine he is knocked out though he gets a he gets a big bump on the head and and rolls over unconscious uh a few hours pass and robin following instructions comes to wong's house because batman left his address which is like you know what you do with a babysitter it's like this is the address of the party that we're going to be at if you need anything uh there's money for pizza on the table Alfred doesn't exist yet at this point, so the babysitter is Dick for himself. Uh, well, I guess maybe he didn't follow instructions. Now that I see this again, uh, he says, It's a good thing that Batman left Wong's address. He will probably be sore at me for disobeying orders, but I've got to see what's going on. He's probably still here with Wong. So it hasn't been a couple hours. It's only been a little bit. So Batman, not Batman, pfft, Robin finds Wong and finds him dead, finds the note, Pier 3, and says, ah, something mysterious is going on, and I'm going to find the answers down at Pier 3. Robin leaves, and the hatchet man that uh, Batman left unconscious up in Wong's rooms wakes up, and he uh, is like, oh, Man, that Batman, he's tough. I better go back to the Green Dragon to uh, see if he's been captured or, like, what's up. Uh, But they're going to be needing me. They need this information. 
We then cut to Robin down at Pier 3, and he says uh, the only thing that looks like it might be a hideout is that schooner over there, and he's going to go take a look. But uh, the hatchet man that, that I was just talking about sneaks up behind him and knocks him out with the blunt side of his hatchet. Which, very versatile weapon, isn't that nice? And then he takes him inside the schooner, so he's right on the money there, and into the lair of the green dragon, which is where we see, again, that large dais with a green-robed man sitting on a throne in front of a also green sort of monster demon-looking guy. I think it's just a statue. It is just a statue. It falls down later, but it is just a statue. Uh, and Robin wakes up. He sees the uh, two kidnapped millionaires, and he sees the, the head of the green dragon. And um, and then the green dragon says, tell me where Batman lives, uh, or do I need to use persuasion? And Robin, of course, says, no, I'll never tell you, because I'm a, I'm a loyal sidekick to Batman. And he says, oh, well, I'm going to cause you pain in order for you to tell me because I like to see things wriggle and then he does a little he 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 uh, very creepily and so as a part of this pain this torture Robin is going to sword fight with a very skilled duelist uh, but Robin only gets a wooden sword so that's not going to work well because uh, I know one thing swords can cut wood uh, so as Robin is fighting uh, his sword keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller because every time he tries to block the sword part part of it gets cut off uh robin gets some distance from the sword fighter and pulls out his trusty string string sling and pellets and uh does a classic move by throwing the rock at the dude's forehead uh very hard uh, and luckily, this is the time that Batman has woken up and has made it to Pier 3 and found the lair of the Green Dragon. So we then get Batman swinging in to save the day. He swings over and he kicks a guy in the chest. It's pretty sick. He gets behind the big green statue and uh, pushes it off the giant uh, dais. Or dais and uh, kills a bunch of people. And this is where I'm realizing I should have been keeping a count like a running total of the number of people that Golden Age Batman has killed. Because, like I always say, Golden Age Batman loves to murder. It's one of his favorite things. He kills, like, one, two, three, four, five dudes right there just by toppling that statue over on top of them. Wait, maybe more. Looks like six or seven. Six or seven dudes in one blow. What a guy. What a murderer. He then... Uh, grabs the leader and is just punching him just punching him punching him, punching him. And then he's like hmm, i wonder how robin's doing uh and he turns his head and he sees that robin's taking on two dudes at once just beating them up and doing a great job because robin says what a party this turned out to be because robin loves violence and so they they you know they they succeed they they conquer the green dragon uh they let the uh, they let the millionaires go. The millionaires say some buckwild things about how the police would probably be hunting for white gangsters and never suspect, suspect that Chinese gang, a Chinese gang would be uh, the ones who did the kidnapping, which is a weird thing to say. But they, they did say that. Uh, we cut to the next day where Bruce Wayne and his fiance, whose name I'm blanking on. I'm going to go with Julie... 
Madison. I think that's wrong, but it sounds close. Uh, they hear that Batman frees millionaires and breaks up an opium ring, and she says to Bruce, she says, what an exciting character that Batman is. Why can't you be that sort of man? All right, why don't you go get engaged to Batman? Oh, wait, you are. Joke's on you, Julie. Uh, we then cut to a... Um, it looks like a Chinese woman and her daughter, and the daughter says, but mother, why should I pray for the well-being of one called the Batman? And the mom says, because, little one, he has saved the souls of many of our people. But for him, the dread opium would have enslaved them as it did the generations in the past, which is true. Opium was a very, very bad thing in, uh, in China for a very long time. Uh, we then cut to the Wayne home. Uh, it's not Wayne Manor yet. And uh, Robin says, it's a pity that Wong had to die because he knew too much. Yeah, it's sad. We'll never see Wong again. At least he got a callback. I think that was nice. And Bruce says, his sacrifice was not in vain. His people are free. It is the end of the Tong of the Green Dragon. And that's the end. And something exciting happens after this. In the final panel where it normally says, you know, like, you know, see you next month on the next thrilling adventure of the Batman and the Boy Wonder Robin. Uh, in this one, it does a bit of foreshadowing, which I think is really cool. So I'll just read it verbatim. It says, beware of Clayface, a black-cloaked, hideous figure that menaces the lives of the Batman and his aide, Robin, the Boy Wonder, as he leaves behind a trail of death. And it's cool, we see a sort of... Uh, I don't know what kind of hat it is. It's like a very wide-brimmed hat uh, and a cloak, and he's carrying a gun. Like It looks like a 9mm. Uh, and he's hiding behind a corner as Batman comes up some stairs. It's very cool. It's very good foreshadowing. It would make me want to buy the next issue. That's good stuff. Uh, but that's the Batman uh, story for this issue. I think it was pretty good. Uh, I think they're, they're, it's improving like rapidly. Rapidly getting better. And I guess that's why they say, like, once Batman gets Robin, it's it's over for every other character. Because, like, the stories are just so much better. But enough about Batman and how Robin makes his stories so much better. Let's move on to uh, the second and final story that we're going to cover uh, in Detective Comics and this episode. Uh, the Crimson Avenger. Uh, the Crimson Avenger uh, is written and drawn by John Letty. Uh, I did see that. Uh, in the actual comic, he goes by Jack Letty, which it always has confused me how Jack is a nickname for John. I don't get it, but it is. Uh, but enough about that. I will say, now that John Letty has taken over the Crimson Avenger, I, I think it's a lot better. Uh, I might have said that last episode about the previous Crimson Avenger. Uh, I just think the art's so much better, uh, and the stories are whatever they're they're golden age stories so they're kind of a little bit wonky but i think the art is great uh and i'll talk about it right now the top the title sort of panel it says the crimson avenger and it has the crimson avenger with his gas gun and the gas coming out is like rainbow psychedelic it's very very cool uh, i'll probably post a picture of it to the instagram but it is very very cool uh but let's get into the actual story so we are uh, in the middle of the night on a naval patrol boat is steaming up the harbor into harbor, and we find out that the crew is coming back for shore leave after a long uh, stretch of patrol duty. So it uh, looks like they're probably Coast Guard 
uh, or something like that. We then see what the story calls three evil figures, and they're waiting like vultures. And they say the ship approaches, and one of them says, Now is the time. Throw the switch. And they throw a switch, and a tremendous explosion blasts out of the very waters of the bay. What? Explosion? Terrorist attack? Well, let's find out. Uh, A little bit later, we are in the Globe Leader, the paper uh, owned and operated by Lee Travis, uh, who we know is the Crimson Avenger. And uh, one of his reporters comes in, reporters comes in, and says that uh, a naval ship has almost been blown to bits in the harbor. So that's like, well, that's weird. That's not normal. We're not at war. Europe is, but we're not. So that's that's strange. So Lee runs it on the front page of the Globe Leader, as is his job. And the next day, Mac, his reporter, comes in to give him the lowdown. And the lowdown is basically this. After the last war, which I assume is referencing World War I, if World War I, in fact, does take place in the Crimson Avenger universe, the harbor was, I guess, booby-trapped or just trapped in general with mines, their own mines, the U.S.'s mines or the city's mines. No, no, no. Cities don't have mines. The America's mines. So, but it's fine. It's not fine. You shouldn't just have explosives in a place where, like, commercial boats, like, civilian boats go. Uh, but don't worry about that. Ignore that. These mines are dead unless they're activated by a switch. Nothing could possibly cause them to explode otherwise. They're not explosives, uh, so don't worry about it. But uh, at the fort in the city, there is a, a room where the switches are. And uh, only only a select number of military personnel know where this room is or how to operate the switches. And so they have the man who was on duty last night in custody because he's the only one who could have could have uh, flipped the switch but there's rumors of possibly aspiring paying him off or something he says that he's innocent but when lee travis is very very interested in this he says "Mm, this might prove interesting so he talks his way into the, the military prison the fort and the guy says i swear I'm innocent. Nobody else could have flipped that switch. I was the only person around. And so Lee's like, well, that's weird. Like, normally, if a guy was trying to, like, prove his innocence, he would have an alibi. Uh, Or he would come up with some sort of alibi if he was guilty in order to kind of keep the blame off him and obviously not go to jail. But the commandant of the fort says, no, 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 he's guilty. And Lee... Travis convinces the commandant to let him see the switch room. He blindfolds him to keep it a secret and brings him to the switch room. And so the switches look like, uh, I guess the best way to describe them is is how Dr. Frankenstein throws that switch to uh, make lightning uh, make his monster, Frankenstein's monster, come alive. One of those kind of switches, those kind of U-shaped switches with the handle that you flip. Uh, into like metal sockets or whatever. So there's one big switch, which is the main switch, and then there's a bunch of smaller switches that are for individual parts of the harbor. And what you don't know is that the main switch has to be switched on before any of the other switches work. So no a regular person wouldn't know that. So it has to be this guy. 
And at, when Lee Travis leaves, he's like, well, I'm more convinced than ever that this guy's innocent. And it's like, hmm, I wonder why he thinks that. Seems like he's kind of guilty, right? Lee Travis is then driving uh, around the harbor and he sees some men working on uh, the seawall. And he asks the men what they're doing, and he, they say, oh, there's a, you know, some weird damage to the seawall a few nights ago, and they're repairing it. And he says, okay, yeah, they're city workers, all right. They're, they're legit. And he continues to drive along the road, or I should say Wing continues to drive along the road. And a little ways off, and he specifically says, uh, too far away from the real workers to have them bothering with it, near enough so that anybody else would think that it's part of the repair job is a shack and outside the shack is a big pile of dirt but there's no holes anywhere so it's like hmm that's suspicious but lee says this is as much as i can do lee travis so i am done for the day or for the issue and now it's time for the crimson so the next day or a few days later i should say uh, we find out that a uh, couple of cruisers from Europe, I presume, it doesn't say exactly, are coming to the harbor on a goodwill tour. Uh, and so one of the reporters is going to go over there and photograph it. And Lee's like, hmm, visiting cruisers, eh? This seems like maybe the intended target for whoever is exploding these mines. And the naval patrol boat was just an experiment, a test. So... Uh, Lee calls up Wing, and he says, Wing, steam my crimson costume. I don't want any wrinkles for the crimson rides tonight. And he you know, puts on his crimson costume, and he has Wing take him to where that shack was, that mysterious shack. And the crimson sneaks up and overhears uh, the men inside. And he does say, uh, those voices, by gosh, if they're not foreign, I'll eat my hat. So it seems like maybe some foreign agents are are behind this. And inside we see two men, uh, and you know, if they look somewhat like the evil figures that we saw at the beginning. So it seems like this is this is the correct thing. And they say so, you know, our country's enemies are sending their cruisers here on a goodwill mission. Well, soon, you know, we're going to blow them to bits and make a lot of trouble for uh, America and uh, hopefully help out our country in the process. Because, you know, if America is brought into the war against the, this country's enemies or their country's enemies, then that's, that's good for them. Uh, divides your enemy's focus. So... So this is a good idea. So what they did is they dug a hole and they cut the wires to the switches for the mines. How they found out about the wires or the switches, no one knows. Uh, but then they attached it to a separate switch that they control. So they can control when the mines go off. And Crim the Crimson is overhearing this when uh, the third evil figure comes up behind him and says, well, I'm lucky that I was out here watching for the ships, because now i found you. And he does call him a swine, which like, dang, that hurts. So they um, say, well, 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 if it isn't the Crimson, I've heard about you. And uh, before I kill you, do you have anything that you want to get off your chest? Um, and he says, you know, he explains basically that you weren't as smart as you thought you were. He saw the control room and he saw that there were cobwebs on the master switch, which proved 
that those switches were never used because you have to use the master switch. And if we go back and look at the, the drawing of the switch room, you can see cobwebs on the main switch. I didn't want to give it away because that's no fun. Because I, when I read it, I didn't, I didn't look for the cobwebs and be like, ah, that switch has never been used. So, so you have to experience it just how I do because, because this is my show. <laughs> um, so he says, uh, you know, I, I saw that you're, you were digging here in the shack because this shack was suspicious. There's no holes around, but there's a bunch of dirt. And he says, oh, yeah, and one more thing before you kill me. You, there's something you've forgotten, my little friend, the gas gun. And he shoots his gas gun, and again, it's like this rainbow, psychedelic sort of looking gas coming out of this gas gun. It looks very, very cool. And, like, it feels like the anguish on these dudes' faces, like, wow, they are being gassed. And it doesn't, it must not feel good to be gassed by this gas gun. The Sandman's gas gun is always, like, depicted as being like, oh, I just take a peaceful sleep, not the Crimson's. It's going to hurt all the way down. Uh, to sleepy time so he knocks him out calls the police and they are arrested and the next day uh, or I guess later that night uh, Lee Travis wants to be on hand at the globe leader he's a workaholic you know he's always burning that midnight oil Uh, when Mac the reporter comes up and says hey guess what the crimson he he got the spy ring that was behind the bombings and and uh, saved the day and he says you know what that's swell and Lee says, I thought I had an inkling that that soldier was innocent. So, but it looks like the Crimson really proved it. Good job, Crimson. Like, all right. All right. Lee, don't, don't break your arm patting yourself on the back. All right. Uh, and we see, you know, the uh, Globe Leader headlines says Crimson captures the spies. And, and uh, Max says, you know what? The Crimson would make a pretty good reporter for the Globe Leader. And Lee says, oh, the paper's doing fine without the Crimson's help. Mac... It's like, well, Lee Travis knows that <laughs> the paper actually does have the Crimson help uh, off the books, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, and that's the end. That's the end of the Crimson story in this issue of Detective Comics number 39. And that's the end of this episode. Uh, I hope you enjoyed. Uh, it's nice to be back in the saddle again, uh, getting back to the old grind, uh, as they say. We met some new characters. We met Dr. Fate. He's very exciting. And we're moving, you know, further in, through time. We're, we're very solidly in 1940, and uh, we'll continue to be in 1940 for a few more episodes. But it's going to just continue to get more and more exciting in this, this uh, good old golden age that we are in. And, of course, we've got IBI Crisis uh, later in the week, and that'll be exciting. But uh, until then, you know, hit us up on socials, get those reviews, tell a friend, you know, all the, you know, the spiel. We've all listened to podcasts. We know the spiel review, follow the socials. There's going to be all the good stuff on there. Covers, primo panels, all that jazz. Uh, but until next time, I'm your host, Nick Byers and, uh, goodbye. <laughs>